Welcome to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Today's interview is with Michael Minta. Michael Minta is an associate professor in political science at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He received a PhD in political science from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He is one of the country's leading experts in the study of the political representation of African American, Latino, and women interests in the United States. And now to our host, Matthew Shervinak. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me back. Why don't we start with your background? Where'd you start? So the arc of your career and uh, where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from a, a small town in South Carolina. Uh, I, I moved to St. Louis to go to college and, and I received my, my undergraduate degree actually in political science at, at Washington University. Uh, I guess what got, got me really kind of started on this um, is in, in this academia profession is, is working um, with a professor there, um, uh, John Gilmore. He's working on a project looking at social security reform. Um, I mean, I needed the money, but I actually also enjoyed the work. Uh, I found myself liking a lot. Um, I even I would ask John about uh, his life as a professor. And, and he's like, oh, I said, you have to do a lot of writing. So yeah, you got to do a lot of writing. I said, well, that's not a profession for me. So most political science uh, majors, I was like, well, maybe law school. But then I, I saw some, uh, some programs on public policy. And so I decided, okay, well, I'll just, I started getting more research and I decided to actually apply to some programs. And I was fortunate enough to get into University of Texas at Austin, the LBJ School of Public Affairs. I was able to study with, with scholars um, and, and big public policy people like Barbara Jordan. Um, so I was kind of in this, this track uh, of being kind of a public policy analyst. And so after I graduated from uh, School of Public Affairs, I, I worked in uh, state government as a policy analyst for a few years with the Texas Attorney General's office. And then I was a policy analyst for this legislative oversight commission uh, called the Sunset Commission, this bipartisan commission that looked at weeding out waste and efficiency in government. Um, I, for the most part, I thought my I mean, policy would be pretty much my career. Um, but as I was worked in government, dealt with state agencies and also the members themselves, I really wanted to explore more questions on how policy got done and not just not just making policy, but understanding the behavior of of the interest groups that were lobbying members and um, and how members came about making decisions. And so um, so what I what I decided to do was like, <laughs> I don't know, mid-career, mid like, hey, I want to get a PhD. So I went back to, to graduate school and got a PhD at the University of Michigan in political science, um, taught it. Since then, I've taught at Washington University in St. Louis, University of Missouri, Columbia. And now here, I've, I've been at the uh, University of Minnesota for, for this will be my sixth year starting um, in the fall. Great. And so you, you kind of mentioned your overarching interest in, you know, political science or the political process. What, what are your kind of broad areas of interest when it comes to research and, and uh, you know, where do you spend, you know, the broad strokes of your time? Yeah, so I focus mostly on U.S. or American politics more broadly, um, mostly teaching and researching on, uh, I teach courses in U.S. Congress, um, interest groups, 
race and ethnic politics. Most of my research focuses in Congress. I focus mainly on political behavior and how members make decisions and um, and how they go about representing their constituents um, and all of their constituents. Um, focus on questions of political representation of underrepresented groups, uh, interest group advocacy, lobbying, and then how race and ethnicity kind of politics kind of informs our understanding of, of how Congress works and how uh, groups receive representation. So that's kind of like the broad interest of, of what I do. Right. Well, why don't we start then with, um, uh, you know, this, this underrepresented groups uh, topic. Uh, you've published books on this subject and you've done a lot of research. Can you talk us through what, you know, what are the kind of the fundamental questions that you had when you did this research and, and uh, what, what were the, what were the findings that you, that you came to, if any? Yeah. Yeah. So no, no, no question. Um, so yeah, uh, like many, many, uh, Students, you know, uh, when you, you you look at American politics and you look at a textbook, and you know, we hear the stories, you know, um, about the founding of the country and uh, what the founders did and democracy and liberty and and um, all of these different questions. And I was like, well, you know, I we don't see much as it relates to to minorities um, uh, or underrepresented groups, blacks, Latinos, women, and so. You know, I, I was just really curious about how do you get groups that were not necessarily included in the founding of the nation, how do they receive representation? Because they were incorporated um, in much later than, than, than our nation's founding. And so really looking at how those groups um, receive voice within an institution that historically hasn't necessarily been responsive or it sometimes takes uh, social movements in order to get those done. So, um, so most of the time I, I'm looking at the political representation of, of Blacks and Latinos in particularly because they're the two largest minority groups. Uh, one day I will expand that to, to, to other groups, but really looking at um, how, do, how do minorities receive representation? Do you see differences between Blacks, Latinos, and white legislators in terms of representing uh, minority interests in Congress on issues such as civil rights, uh, racial issues. I mean, we're having debates right now about racial, um, racial justice, racial profiling. How do members deal with those issues and address those issues? Uh, most of the existing uh, theories that we know is that members usually shy away from those if they try to reach the, the median voter or the person that's in the middle, if that's where most of the voters are, then how, what's the incentive and what would motivate members to actually pay more attention to those, to those questions? And so I explore, do we see uh, differences? Does a diverse Congress really lead to um, better representation of, of these groups? What did you find? Well, yeah, so that's, so that's to be quite a bunch of research going like, well, really doesn't matter if you're, if you're black or, or white, that long as you can vote in ways and um, speak to issues that minorities care about, then, you know, it, it, it shouldn't matter. And, and also since Democrats usually are closely aligned, particularly after the civil rights movement, are close, are more closely aligned to 
the, uh, the issues and the interests of Blacks, then clearly it's more about just getting Democrats elected and not necessarily uh, that you shouldn't see differences between white Democrats and Black or, or Latino Democrats. And, and most of my research uh, finds that there are differences. Some people's like, well, aha, yeah, of course there are differences, <laughs> but it's not clear though in the beginning because the argument is, well, it's just Democrats and, and that's all you really need. Uh, but I found that in my research that you can't look just at how members vote on legislation, that you have to look at all these other, other um, activities that members engage in, such as attending an oversight committee uh, meeting to, to make sure that say, um, the Department of Justice or uh, US Health and Human Services, that they're actually implementing many of the civil rights laws and social programs that minorities care about. I mean, very few laws are passed each year, as we know. And so, but most of what happens is making sure that the federal government is actually implementing and enforcing the various laws. And so I, so I, my research in, in, my, in my first book, I look at, well, do you see differences who's coming to these oversight committee hearings, say for the US um, Department of Justice and saying, hey, are you guys enforcing these civil rights laws? And so I did see differences between blacks and, and blacks, Latinos and white legislators where white, where black legislators and Latino legislators were more likely to attend these hearings. They were more likely to question uh, Department of Justice officials and say, uh, are you doing all that you can possibly can to enforce these laws? Same thing with, with, with social welfare type of policies. Are you providing, are, are you implementing programs and policies that are going to kind of eliminate poverty and inequality um, in these communities? And so I found that there are differences and it's not just party um, that's predicting it, that there are these racial differences. So the question you might ask is why would you think, what, what makes race so different, right? Like why, uh, why would it kind of like, when you look at party, why would you still see differences? Because the, you would imagine the coalition for Democrats is pretty much the same, right? Um, and, and, and part of uh, my argument that it's this idea of this, this, this racial group consciousness that, that goes on that there's this obligation, racial and ethnic group consciousness, there's this obligation that goes back, maybe we can go back to W.E. Du Bois uh, and this, uh, this idea um, that, that you have to lift as you climb. And so this, this responsibility that, that members feel, and it's definitely uh, that they have to do all they can to help uplift the minority um, community. Um, to help eliminate any type of barriers. And so while members definitely, all members are concerned about getting elected, regardless of their race, ethnicity, or their gender, um, but there is kind of this expectation and this obligation that you're going to do something to help, not just everyone, but help help Black members and, and or, or Black members of the community, the whole community is all to do, to do better. So, um, Again, it's not saying that you should only look after Blacks, but it's just uh, this special obligation that because of this history of discrimination and current history of racial discrimination in employment and housing, that they have an obligation and an expectation to help out. What about in terms of 
of bills, you're talking about oversight hearings. Um, I'm curious, is there a difference in the nature of the bills that different groups, you know, sub, or different members submit based on which groups they're part of? Yeah, so I, I mean, obviously you see most of the differences, the racial differences on issues that pertain to race. So if there's a, a bill that's, um, you know, John Conyers sponsored the racial profile, anti-racial profiling bill for, for many years, or, or, or even symbolic bills such as the King Holiday. I mean, for many years, I mean, over and over, he would uh, introduce that bill. Uh, a bill on reparations. Um, I don't think he used to kind of just introduce that bill every year, but now he's. I think it's moved on. I can't remember who's sponsoring it now. Um, but yeah, these type of bills that deal with racial issues, you usually see minority members sponsoring it um, as it deals with immigration um, issues that deal with language. I, I shouldn't say immigration, but language differences. Um, you start seeing mostly Latino members introducing those type of bills. And so that's where you see the greatest difference between um, black, black, Latino and white members and also, and also uh, Republicans. And this is in the nature of the bills themselves, like the subject matter. Yeah, the, the actual bills themselves, you, you, you see most of the differences as it relates to um, to race and say social welfare. Now, if it's an issue, if it's a bill about the environment or econ the economy, then I, you usually don't see much, at least most of the research out there in terms of the bills, you don't see much in the way of uh, black or Latino members sponsoring more bills in this area, but most of the existing research, and I, and I haven't done any uh, research on the bill sponsorship that mostly on, on oversight, but uh, the existing research that's out there shows that most of the differences that you see is based on say racial bills or uh, social welfare bills. That's where you see the biggest difference. And I see that also in terms of the, the oversight arena, uh, poverty, inequality. Um, so that's where you really see the big differences. But yeah, but if it's something like on the defense or environment, you don't see much in the way. And, and there is really is no expectation that blacks, Latinos and whites would see differently, would look, there, there's no expectation they would behave differently on these issues. And do the, I, I guess the question I have related to the race question on member activities, right? Do, is, is it because they feel solidarity with the group or is it because they experience that same environment that that group experienced growing up? Like, is it more of like, I know what they need or is it, I identify with the group? Yeah, so that's, so that's a combination, right? So, um, so most, most members, right? Most black Latino members or the Congressional Black Caucus or the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, they're, the vast majority of them are from majority minority district, majority black district, majority Latino district. And so, um, you know, parts like how do you disentangle like, you know, the theory I'm saying, oh, it's kind of racial and ethnic group consciousness or, oh, they're just in a district with a bunch of blacks, a bunch of Latinos. Um, and, and that's, I mean, it's, that is one of the, the biggest problems with trying to disentangle that. But, but what we know is, um, you know, prior, you know, like after the civil rights movement, many of these districts, 
where you had a majority, not majority black, but a sizable black population in these southern districts where you had southern white southern Democrats that just were not responsive on civil rights issues. Um, and so this idea that it's all about the district, the composition of the district, yeah, the composition of the district is important in terms of, 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 of maybe putting some influence on members, but uh, from what we know from historical studies and all that, that for the most part, when you had these districts where sizable black uh, population, that these members were not as responsive. Um, so that kind of brings in the theory. So now the district composition where you're getting black members are now elected to some of these districts. And now some of them are, are many of them are majority black districts. You're starting to see them actually behave in a way that is different from say a Southern a white Democrat, um, and uh, and I think that is part of their connection. There is an experience, and you and I see that in some of the hearings that I looked at, where you would see members of Congress, like a, a issue, a, a hearing on racial profiling, where members would say, "I was personally stopped by um, uh, the police, and um, and I felt that I was profiled, and so I understand that." Now, you know what's interesting? I, I've interviewed members in the past and no one, they, they'll never tell me like, oh, this is, you know, I represent everyone, racial group consciousness, it doesn't matter. But when you look in the actual transcripts, you see them talk about their own lived experience with many of these issues, whether it's uh, racial profiling um, uh, by the police, whether it's being followed in a store, I mean, it's, uh, or, or members who lived in poverty, I mean, Many of these issues, they you can find it in, um, in in the transcripts, and that's and that's a part of about representation is this deliberation of actually so people can vote, so members can go in just like anyone. They can read, um, they can read a bill, they can read the witness testimony, and they can talk to interest groups, whether you're black or white or Latino, and you can say, okay, I'm going to vote the right way. But when you're in a debate and you're discussing these issues and people are bringing questions, it's like we're having this discussion right here. Um, if it's something that comes up that's not in the in the presentation, then you have to rely on kind of your knowledge and your lived experience. Um, and so that's what members bring to the table when they're debating these issues. They're talking about um, not just their, their book knowledge, but also kind of how that experience helps inform the policy that's being discussed, whether it's um, a, a bill that's about to be, be implemented or the oversight activities of a particular agency. Interesting. And so I think you've also done work related to the special interest groups that you know, support some of the, you know, the underrepresented groups that you've mentioned. Um, so what is their role in the process? And you know, how does that work uh, in practice? Yeah, so I so I, I wanted to expand, and it was a second book that I uh, uh, that I, that just came out, and and I was looking at groups like the NAACP um, that usually advocates for blacks, um, Unidos uh, USA, which used to be the National Council of Ross, a big advocacy group for for Latinos, and so I really wanted to look at this idea of how do these groups uh, get voice or receive voice in Washington on Capitol Hill? 
Um, when you look at all the type of traditional measures that we use to try to assess influence, um, PAC contributions, how much money are they giving uh, to the parties and to candidates? Well, many of these groups are 501c3 or charity organizations. Uh, they raise money or 501c4 um, organizations. So there are limitations on how much uh, they can contribute if they can't contribute at all. Um, and also their lobby, there are certain restrictions placed on how much they lobby. And so when you're dealing with a lot of big business groups, uh, people on K Street, how do these groups, when they're going to Congress and they're trying, if, if, they, if, if they basically are hindered uh, by um, uh, their, their resources, how do they compete and somehow on a level and level the playing field? And so the research I did, I, I looked more, I, I connected it to uh, redistricting. And essentially saying that the one, one strategy these groups use, particularly in the 60s and the 70s and, and, still, and still today, um, uh, is really try to, to really get in the redistricting process to create more majority Black, majority Latino districts. And so part of, the, part of my theory behind this is that um, if it's about PAC contributions, um, and you don't, and you really can't do that because of, of the entity that you chose or, um, and also just the resources that you have bring to bear to the table, then why not just try to create an environment where you can increase the chances of uh, electing more of your allies to Congress. Um, and some of the strongest allies for, for these groups are black and Latino legislators. And so, so they were very heavily involved in these redistricting debates, um, created these majority black and majority Latino districts, which has led to the increase of the number of, of black and Latino legislators in, in the US Congress over time. And you can see, see that change and most of, and, and particularly in the United States House. Uh, the Senate obviously can't do any redistricting. And so uh, part, so my theory behind this is that if you can increase the number of black and Latinos in Congress, um, that there'll be, you'll have allies who will advocate, not just allies, but advocates for many of the positions that these civil rights groups care about. So instead of, if we think that, you know, contributions, and, and it's very mixed on whether or not political contributions actually influence the way members behave. Um, that's, but, but you don't have to worry about it if you can just get your allies, um, get more advocates in there who can sponsor bills that you can care about, can go to oversight hearings, can go to markup hearings, um, can introduce amendments. That's where those groups that's where diversity in Congress has helped those groups the most. And so that's very interesting. So get allies elected. That makes it, so that sounds like a good strategy. Um, and redistricting is one of the key ways you're saying that they accomplish that task. What about in terms of like lobbying Congress itself or getting into the, you know, convincing various offices to vote on particular bills? Are they engaged in that kind of activity or is it really focused more on the other areas you mentioned? Well, yeah, and, and that's and that's the tricky part of this, right? With being a 501c3 or even a C4, right? Most of these groups don't like to call what they do lobby. 
<laughs> but but that's what they do, right? It's just, uh, you know, we have this really strange definition of, of lobbying. So if I, if a, uh, if one of these groups took a bill to a member of Congress, as long as that member said, requested that bill, it's not lobbying, it's providing information. Uh, uh, and, and, and so many of these groups, and it's not just the civil rights organization, all these groups know how this operates, is that, um, that these groups do provide um, advocacy. I'll use the word they use, they, they provide advocacy. And, and most of us, we might think that that's, that's lobbying. So yes, they do engage in it, but uh, no one wants to really run into trouble with the IRS, right? So that's why they're really, that's why groups that are 501c3s or c4s really kind of toe that line on what they can and cannot do. And they, even if they're meeting with a member, depends on if the member requested the meeting or whether the or or whether those groups said, I'm gonna go there and I want you to support this bill. So I think many of our lobbying disclosure reports, uh, I mean, I don't think they truly indicate how much lobbying or advocacy these groups do. Well, if we, if we reframe the, the topic just to information, so how does, you know, uh, how do these groups provide information to Congress? Is it, do they go to committees and provide that? Are they suggesting oversight hearings like you were mentioning earlier, because oversight seems to be important. Like what are the ways, what kind of information I guess are they providing to Congress and to which level is it member? Is it committee? Is it leadership? I'm, I'm curious about how that. Whole yeah. Process yeah. Is. So, these groups, I mean, many of these groups are, are under-resourced, right? So there's maybe like one or two people that are actually what you would call their government relations person or lobbyist. Um, uh, part, of my th- part of my theory and what I've found in my research is that, you know, on many issues, these groups, they can't, they can't do everything, right? They can't lobby on every issue that they want to lobby on. So part of a theory is that these groups, these members of Congress, these Congressional Black Caucus members, these Congressional Hispanic Caucus members actually do a lot of advocacy work on their own that aligns with these, with these groups. And so, yeah, so these groups, just like most groups, right, they'll, they'll, they'll meet with members and uh, provide uh, information uh, on it, on an issue that they, that they looked at. Uh, they'll meet with members of Congress um, so all of the traditional ways testify at hearings, and and that's one of the that's one of the things that I found that um, as the diversity in Congress has increased over time, you see many of these groups testifying more over time as the Congress divers, diversifies. And I've I looked at a lot of other factors that could possibly explain this, but the biggest factor that I saw when I was studying that it's mostly you just have more diversity. Um, and it's not just that Congress deals with more of these issues, uh, you have more diversity. So they're testifying more, uh, you're seeing more of their bills that they care about receive uh, markup hearings um, because of the diversity. So, so you're really starting to see many of the issues get greater attention. Um, now passage is, 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 a, is a different story, but getting more attention because of this diversity um, 
is important. And are there specific like committees where most of that attention is focused? You know, is it, you know, justice or some other area? You know, yeah, mostly like House Judiciary, Senate Judiciary is where most of the civil rights, uh, where, where it has jurisdiction over civil rights issues. Um, also criminal justice issues are, are, are usually under these um, uh, jurisdictions. But there's also like House Financial Services, um, where you're talking about the, the, the in the 2000s uh, with the, the Great Recession and the financial crisis. And you saw many hearings there talking about predatory lending and um, how it affected minority communities. And so you got interest groups testifying, you got members of Congress uh, uh, asking quite tough questions, uh, thinking about solutions on how it not just affect the country as a whole, because it affected everyone, but also how it affected Black and Latinos. So you you saw that, you see, you see that happening. So I'm curious if we go back to the 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 redistricting question for a second. Um, I'm curious on a theoretical and even on a practical matter. I mean, you've studied this for some time. So if you have a, if you have a, a district that's, you know, I don't know what they are, but maybe you could tell me, you know, if it's like 60% Latino, for instance. Um, and so they, they elect a Latino uh, as part of that district is, or do they feel like they're better off than if there were 30% in two districts of Latinos and they, didn't have any Latino in, in Congress. Is that kind of the calculation they're making or, and do they get better representation if they have a safer district in the long run? Yeah, so that's that's always the big conundrum, right? So like, um, and, and, you, and, you've, and you've actually seen these internal battles within the parties. Uh, well, and, and, and mostly what, what I'm referencing is mostly the Democratic Party because that's where you get most of the black and Latino legislators. And so there has been this internal debate about party considerations and also balancing that against kind of descriptive representation of having more blacks and having more Latinos in Congress. And in this example, more Latinos in Congress, right? Do you want more Democrats if you break the district up? Then is it better just to have more Democrats that are sympathetic toward Latino interests? Or is it just better to have one, uh, uh, one Latino interest and one Latino legislator and then have that other district be a Republican district and where Republicans usually don't have the same track record as, as Democrats on, on Latino issues. Um, yeah, that's, that's that internal battle where the, the, the civil rights groups are like, no, we want that, that one Latino because it's, diff it's even now, I mean, even though we've seen some progress, right, where where you're seeing black legislators winning in majority white districts and states. But when you look at the numbers, the vast majority of black and Latino district uh, members are from majority minority districts. Either it's a majority Latino district or a majority black district or a combination of like in California and Texas where it's a combination of blacks and Latinos forming a majority minority district. Um, so that's usually where most of these members come from. And, and I think that you are starting to see some debates about how you can mess around with those, I guess mess around, but can adjust those percentages where you can still get a Latino member without affecting the chances of the party. Um, 
So that's the trade-off that they're concerned with is the, is the, is the race versus the democratic party itself. That's, that seems to be the, the conflict there. Which right. I, members, members will always say, what good is it to have more um, blacks or more Latinos if you're in a minority and you can't, you can't control the agenda. You can't get anything done. Um, so, so they're always trying to balance that. But there's also been pushback on this idea that drawing a um, majority black district. Now, granted, if you pack a district, right, with 90 percent, you know, no, I don't no Democrats don't like that. Republicans don't like. But if you uh, but there is this this idea that if you have, say, a 60 percent black district or Latino district, that somehow that hurts Republicans and uh you know, other some scholars would push back and say, "Well, no, it's not. You've lost. I mean, you you got to win. You can't just put it on on black voters, Latino voters. You also have to appeal to white voters too." And so, um, so the so Democrats have talked about adjusting their message and not just putting it all on one group. That you also have to appeal to a much broader constituencies. So, how do you talk about issues that blacks, Latinos? Are concerned about without alienating white voters, and that's that's always the challenge with the Democratic Party. Um, I think that's going to be a challenge for the Republican Party coming up soon too. Even though we like to think that, oh, you know, it's mostly a a, a party that caters toward whites, and I've even had some colleagues like Republican Party is officially now the white party. But I mean, I, I don't know if you if you start looking kind of at the demographics and how groups are slowly being or incorporating and increasing their participation and, and becoming a bigger share of the electorate. I, I just think that Republicans, I, I think, especially on the long term, are adjusting their messaging. Uh, maybe, maybe right now it's the descriptive representation where you're starting to see more prominent, like, like Tim Scott, you know, I've heard he's been rumored as a possible presidential candidate. Um, I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that. Now the question is, will it lead to substantive changes in, in the agenda of these politicians that are running? That remains to be seen, so. Yeah, and I also wonder, you know, I'm assuming that some of these districts, when they draw them that way, they might be safer districts than other kinds of districts. There's maybe less competition for the seat and whether that has an impact on representation, you know, because it's possible that if the seat's too safe, it leads to the, less uh, a less aggressive representative uh, you know they don't have to work as hard to be reelected I, I don't know if that's a consideration that's been well you know about. that's well that's the challenge like even if you go beyond race right I mean uh, you know I'll, I'll talk to students and they'll say we want competition we want real competition because you know we all say oh there are only about 25 to 35 seats in the house that are truly competitive and I'll say okay well, Look at the district here in Minneapolis. Do you want them to redraw the district and make it a very competitive? And go, ah, well, I don't know if I really, really want that, right? So like, we, we want this competition. Democrats say they want it, Republicans say, but do they really want it, right? And so we always find like control for the House and even the Senate, it's just based on like a small number of seats. I mean, I don't think there is a, um, as much as, as, as we say we want competition, but when you really like 
put it in people's face like, okay, do you really want to be in a district where your member might actually lose? Especially, you no, know, I, I think they backtrack on that. At least I see that a lot. All right. Well, great. Well, let's move on to an, another subject I know that you're thinking about these days, which is, and most people are, which is the pandemic. Um, and you've been doing some work related to the pandemic. Can you share with us sort of what you're, what you're doing, what you're looking at, and uh, any results you've found so far? Oh, yeah, man. Thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I, uh, I mean, it just changed my whole <laughs> kind of like research lab, you know, in March of what, 2020. I'm working on another project dealing with like Congress and corporate money. And then the pandemic happens and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to figure what's, go out, what's going on here. Everyone's trying to figure out. Right. So everyone's like, oh, Trump, he's terrible. And, you know, the executive branch and how could they not do it? FDA. And then I'm just like, oh, God, there's that's so there has to be more to this, this story. Right. It can't just be the president. Um, so I, you know, obviously my interest in, in Congress, I was like, well, what was Congress doing? You know, and why are we so ill-prepared to deal with this um, and, and respond to, to this crisis? And so what I did is I just recalibrated, started working on a project trying to look at congressional attention um, to infectious disease, communicable diseases since the 1900s. And so really looking at the politics kind of behind this, like what's, what's driving this? And so, um, you know, is... Do you see Democrats paying more attention um, in the Congress to these, these issues than Republicans or Republicans paying more attention than Democrats? Um, do you see, uh, I even moved it over to the executive branch. Do you see in terms of, do you see differences between Democrats and Republicans in terms of responding to these issues and paying attention to these issues? Um, so I'm looking at that over, over time. Um, obviously, we live in a polarized world, too, and growing, many studies about growing polarization. And so how much does polarization affect our ability to pay attention, whether to prepare or either respond to, to these issues? So got some, some very still collecting data, doing some preliminary analyses, but uh, um, I, I, don't, I think there's enough blame to go around for everyone with my initial analysis. No preliminary results to share? Not any that I would want to stand by right now because it could change. So. Got it. But yeah, but right now, but what I am noticing is that polarization doesn't seem to really um, affect this, this public health issue. It, it seems to be somewhat different from from the other issues that, you know, maybe if we're talking about, you know, welfare reform or something like that, then you start seeing the clear policy differences or, or, or the, or, um, or, or maybe even racial issues, but on public health, there, there seems to be, um, uh, so I don't think it is polarization is really driving this the way we think that it is. So. Mm. Awesome. So maybe we can move on to the questions that I ask all the guests on the program so I can someday compare the answers. Okay. Um, are you ready to move on to those? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the first one, I think we've already talked about a little bit, but would like to get your personal opinion on, you know, what you think congressional representation should mean. Well, and that, 
that's always the conundrum, right? From, from the founding, right? Should members of Congress, do they have an obligation just to represent their districts or their states, you know, local versus the national representation of federalists and anti-federalists had these debates. And, um, you know, can we, can we have a Congress that address pressing national issues right now, like the uh, trying to solve the pandemic, uh, get us out of this pandemic or, or infrastructure, but yet still pay attention to the local needs, such as if farmers that are affected by this drought right now, should we have policies that specifically benefit a particular district um, or communities that are affected by, by crime and, 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 and racial profile. I mean, can we, can we deal with local issues and also national issues at, at the same time? And, and, and that's the balance that, that members are, are trying, are trying to, to, um, to work through even, even now. I mean, this is, this is nothing new. And so I think that uh, representation has to be a, a mixture of looking after the, the national interests, uh, but at the same time, paying attention closely to, to the local interests. I mean, it, just because you live in a, a, uh, an urban area doesn't mean um, what is happening to farmers doesn't have an impact on you. Um, it sure certainly does, right? You get your food, that's all that stuff, all that stuff matters. And so um, I, I think that really trying to figure out ways that members can, can, or, or can operate in the national interest and also take care of local interests is, is what we're, um, we're dealing with now. Now, party polarization, I mean, Congress is, I mean, many scholars are looking at how, you know, the, the competition between the parties for control of the House and the Senate is intense. I mean, it's probably, I mean, remember like it, you know, Democrats dominated most of the 20th century, early 20th century, um, and it started getting more competitive, like in, in the mid 1990s. And so it seems that this this fight for trying to control uh, um, the chamber has, has made it difficult for for Congress to work kind of on the national on the national frame and also um, uh, thinking more on on our on party or party trying to maintain the majority or get back to majority is making it difficult to really represent those those national interests. So now you're starting to see more partisan. It's, it's in terms of your your personal opinion, if I kind of dig in on the, okay. the question a little bit. So, you know, you're elected to Congress. Do you represent the people who voted for you or the whole district? Um, is it everyone or is it you know, the voters or the, or the primaries, primary voters. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, obviously in theory, you're supposed to represent everyone in your right. district, but there's obviously uh, well-documented research that shows that members represent their district based on the issues that are in front of them, right? So every issue has a variety of different constituencies. As a matter of fact, I mean, even when I worked in Texas, that's that's how I, I mean, there's research that bears out in Congress, but even in Texas, that's how every issue that we work on, whether it's highways or the environment, members, these constituents come to mind. Now, the problem with that, right, it's only a limited number of people, right? So maybe if you came to my office and lobbied, or maybe it's someone who was a campaign contributor, 
But there are other people out there that aren't organized, can't lobby, but have interests. And members are supposed to represent those interests, but you know, they, they see it, they represent who they see. And so that, that could be a, a problem. And, and, and that's something, I mean, we're all, I mean, we're all, have, we're, we're human, right? We have these type of, we like to think that we're taking every, I'm sure members are thinking, you know, I'm thinking, I'm looking after everyone, but in a lot of ways, they're just limited in terms of, do they truly have the capacity to gather in all the interests of their constituents? And I'm sorry, sending out a, a letter to a couple of people or a few people in your district, that's, that's, not, that's not like a scientific survey. So it sounds like you think, at least in theory, they should represent the whole district, right? Everyone in the district, not just a, minor, a minority of people, whether it's a special interest or something else. It's everyone. Well, uh, in the district now. Well, well, well yes, but, but but let me let me put a caveat to that, right? And this is some, and this is something that, that the founders said, right? Like people have intensities of preferences, right? So if there's a group where 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 a policy could really affect them or disproportionately affect them, but everyone else doesn't get doesn't care about it you know, or, or somewhat apathetic about it, then long as that it person with that intense preference, long as it's not hurting other people, then maybe there's some give and take on, well, okay, yeah, you really feel strongly about this. It's gonna help. It could, I don't necessarily see how it's gonna help, but it, but it can help you and it can help us be a stronger district. And then that other group, who may, may have an intense preference, but this group doesn't have intense preference, then, then yeah. So I think it's a give and take type of thing I, um, in terms of how you represent. So I, I, I don't wanna say that, uh, I don't, I don't wanna put like a negative thing on special interest because that's usually how it is, right? Like if you represent your pro-environment or you anti you know, people say, oh, that's a special interest. People could say a civil rights group's a special interest, but these are organized groups. Everyone has their, their own preferences and intensity about these. And so I think there's, there's room for maneuver. And that's, that's what legislators are trying to do every day. There's an interesting nuance that you're bringing in with regard to this intensities, right? Because, you know, everyone may be equal in the district, you know, in theory for representation, but if some are having a major issue and others aren't, um, how do you, rep, you know, you're, you know, how does the, how does a legislator respond to that? It's a, it's a key one. What about in terms of the, the debate around, you know, the, you're reflecting the beliefs of the constituents versus their, what you judge to be their interests, whether you make judgments or whether you're just a pass through for their beliefs. Where do you come out on that one? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you don't, if you're saying that I know, kind of like the trustee type, right? It's like, I know what's in the best interest of the district. Um, you don't know. Um, I mean, I don't, I mean, in some ways, I'm, I don't necessarily say I buy into the trustee versus delegate. I, I don't, where the delegate versus trustee delegate, I vote a certain way, you just do what I say, right? Voters, member, you you just do it. Or or, or a member who's elected and said, well, I don't care what you guys think, I'm gonna do what I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily 
believe in ex those extremes. I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? Where um, members are in a position where they do have more, they have, or they're supposed to have more information, right? Um, again, it depends on like the average constituent, right? Uh, they don't have as much information as a member's office. But you do have certain groups that have more, more information than the members themselves, right? So they're trying to really balance this balance making policy based on a electorate that may not be as informed. And it's not, and to me, I don't think that's necessarily a negative. People are like, oh, people don't know anything. You can't know everything, right? There's, there's no way you can know everything. Um, but you do want a member who can kind of assess what the groups want, who really are informed and know what they want against the, the, the ordinary constituent that may not have an idea, try to balance those interests and then make an assessment because at the end of the day, they do have to, to make an assessment. So um, I, I don't wanna say that people, it's like a pass through. I think that a, a, a good legislator is balancing all those interests and trying to come with the right decision. Now, obviously there are some members, you're right, that probably don't, care as much but um and and my in my experience working with or talking to different members they're trying to make those those tough calls and those those decisions all right well, great well my next question is um how would your ideal congress allocate its time and that means sort of in dc versus in the district or you know working on legislation versus oversight versus campaigning you know where do you see that balance yeah you know you took you know, you talk to most members, obviously, they say they want to spend more time learning if they're on particular committees. They want to learn more about the policies and the issues that come before their committee. And but they feel that they spend so much time fundraising. And I mean, that's 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 just kind of the reality of the situation, right? Like you can't make policy if you if you don't get elected. And so I, I think that if we could. Uh, find some way to make bring you know some more balance where members can concentrate more on policy making, whether it's in hearings, listening to agencies, and um, like yeah, we passed this law a while back, but it's not necessarily as effective as we want. We might need to make some tweaks to it, or maybe we need more resources to implement uh, a, a particular piece of legislation. Um, give members more resources or time where they could go home, like you said, and go to the district, talk to people, not just in a purely, oh, I want to get elected phase, but really trying to figure out what members, uh, what the constituents want and what they should be working on, um, getting, getting more information like that. So I think, you know, splitting that time between the district, you know, I don't, I don't know how to, how I would put a percentage on like, first being in DC versus being in the district. I, I think they're both equally important, right? I mean, it's hard to be a representative if you're not back at home, really talking to the people, talking to the groups and how national policy and local policies are affecting them. So I, I, I think that's important, but you have to bring that, that, that local experience and that knowledge, bringing it to the table in DC in order to negotiate with party leaders um, also work across the partisan. I, I do still, I still think there is, there's room for bipartisan, but I, I don't think, 
I don't believe in bipartisanship just for the sake, just to say it's bipartisan. I think that there's evidence that members from both parties have similar interests, but it goes back to this question of they're still fighting for majority control. And so sometimes it's hard to really uh, to, to get these members or get these policies that they care about um, passed because they're always trying to find an angle to, to stay in that majority or get back into the majority. Well, that leads nicely to my next question, which is how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? You know, should we have debates on the floor? Should that discussion compromise be in committee? Should it be transparent to everyone on TV or should it be private in the back room? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, um, I mean, obviously Congress, I mean, you know, obviously over the years, I mean, they just, Congress is just in so many different policy areas, far more policy areas than the founders would have ever imagined, right? I mean, um, I, I think committees, and, and that's the thing you'll probably hear many scholars and probably members of Congress themselves will say that they wish committees were, were, were stronger. Um, and, but then there's also, well, party leadership, you know, that's, that should be stronger. And so I, I think that at committees, that's where you get the information, that's where you get the knowledge, you can gain expertise. Uh, debates on the floor, uh, I, I think that's, uh, many people like to say it was symbolic. I mean, those are actually important too, because they, you know, going to congressional C-SPAN, only geeks like me probably go and read like the transcripts of, of, of congressional hearings and, uh, or, or even, yeah, I read the transcripts um, and sometimes watch them on C-SPAN. So, uh, but the floor debates, people, people watch those and maybe even the local media might pick up a, a good floor debate. So, but I think most of the work, most of the liberation has to occur, particularly in the House of Representatives, in the committee level and the subcommittee level, and the Senate also. It's just um, that's just just where work gets done. Now the now the question is, how powerful should these committees be, right? In terms of like if the committee sits down and they gain expertise in a particular issue, and the committee proposes a policy. But then the party leaders say, well, it's not the best for the parties. Um, I mean, that's that, I mean, I think that's always the, the sticking point here. Right. Right. Well, next question is um, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Well, I mean, I know people want to talk about like the filibuster and, and all of that, but I, I'm <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm gonna stay away from that because I'm sure everyone has a, a take on it. Um, I think something as simple as just, believe it or not, um, pay um, the staffers more, um, try to retain the talent that they have. Um, I mean, it's, it's a shame that I think that, you know, people will come in staffers, committed, you know, learning the process, you know, kind of learning on the government's dime, getting all this information, skills and experience, and then they move over to a more lucrative job in the private sector. Now, now granted, that's, that's their prerogative to do, but I think it would be nice if we actually paid staffers, committee staffers too, I mean, particularly committee where you're getting all that expertise and um, 
to pay them and, and to retain them so that they don't have to go to these, these private entities and whatever working for this big lobbying firm where a, a career in government is attractive and they can actually stay there. And, and, and I think that would just really help, help us make better policy. And, and it wouldn't keep us at, the dis, at uh, a disadvantage. And when I say us, I'm about the American people, I think it wouldn't put us at a disadvantage when we're talking with, with interest groups. And because if you're always rotating people in and out and you're having someone in who's only been there for a year or two, then, I mean, and but you have some lobbyists or, or a person from an advocacy group that's been there for 15, 20 years and more knowledgeable, I mean, it's just, I just think it's not not a fair fight. So I, I really believe that we should should pay more money. I mean, I know that's probably not a popular thing, but I, I think we should try to keep the talent and expertise. Well, invest in expertise, right? I mean, I think that's a, a totally um, legitimate uh, use of finance for the for Congress, right? I mean, it's um, and I think they just passed something related to that. So uh, there's hope. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so too because that's that's very very capacity is is so important. We shouldn't, I mean, like you said, one of the one of the greatest lawmaking bodies, maybe the premier lawmaking body in, in the world, and um, the turnover and staff is 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 just is just troubling to me. Next question is: What book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to Congress? Wow, there there's so many. Um, gosh, uh, well, I mean, the one, I think one book that really kind of got me thinking about my, my research agenda is like Tyranny of, of the Majority, um, Lonnie Guineer, um, and it, it really just made me think about this idea of representation and whether or not you need diversity in Congress, whether whether this whole strategy to to get more blacks, to get more Latino and Latinos in Congress, whether that and really she focused mostly on, on blacks, um, does it really lead to better representation of their interests? Just because you got more faces doesn't mean um, that it's going to lead to more representation. So I've spent really most of, you know, most of my career really trying to answer that question, right? Is, does it make a difference? Can, can you just have whites? Uh, can you have white allies? And can you still get the movement on these type of policies? Um, and so that's, yeah, so that's, I think that's the, the book that's really kind of, if you had to name one, there are many, but it's the one book that's kind of really made me think about what I do. Great, well, before I go on to my last question, um, I was thinking about your, opening remarks and uh, your background and talking about when you were in Texas and your work on the sunset uh, provisions in Texas. Um, so I wanted to bring that back for a minute. Uh, if you can go back in time to that, to that, you know, when you were working in that area, you know, Texas is famous for this concept of sunsets on its legislation. And uh, we don't have that in, in Congress, whereas maybe we should. So I'm curious, since you've had that experience, what was your perspective on sunsets while you were working in that area? And do you think that's something that could be brought to Congress or should be? Yeah, um, I mean, sunset in a lot of ways, these, these good government provisions where you're just 
you're always forced to reevaluate. I mean, I mean that is a, that is an interesting question, right? I mean, I mean, we do have some federal laws where you know basically they expire and you got to either reauthorize or it goes away. Um, uh, I mean, the reauthorization process at the federal level, though, is I mean, an agency can still continue without being reauthorized, and so so I mean, it's federal government is just so different, right? It can just do things that. You, necessarily can't do at the state level, but you know, Texas, if a if an agency isn't reauthorized, then it's abolished. And so, um, but I can't imagine that on the federal level, right? That if you didn't reauthorize a certain agency or certain provisions that we would actually uh, abolish it. But um, but there might be for, you know, for various programs and things like that to really, uh, where an agency, where a law is about to expire and really taking a hard look at whether or not we need this federal program. It's like in, in, in Texas, we like, we'd look like at the Department of, of Health. Uh, should it be authorized or should it just be abolished or should it be merged? I mean, these are, I mean, of course, I mean, we rarely ever recommended that our commission abolish anything. Even if we did, it would be our, even the smallest agencies. Uh, we said, oh, it should be merged. And groups would like, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. And then they'd start, they would, if we didn't, if we didn't, if the professional staff, if we didn't agree with them, they'd go to the member's office, the members come back, what are you guys doing? What are you talking about? We're like, we got all this information here and we'd have the data and say, well, it'd be better if it was merged here. And the commission was just like, no, we're not gonna do it. Um, but there were a lot of good things that we were able to do where we were able to reauthorize agencies and provide um, uh, greater legislative clarity because their roles have changed over time. Um, it really makes members take a harder look at whether this, whether a federal program or, excuse me, a state program, and I imagine if we do it, should be continued and whether you can spend resources on it or should we change it to adapt to the times. And so that's, that's yeah, I, I agree. I think maybe on the federal level, we could consider something like that, but yeah. Right. Well, good. So my last question is really about your your plans for the long term in terms of research. Is it is it pandemic? Do you have other things on the horizon? Why don't you share with us your your long term? Yeah. So my um, yeah, still work. I'll, I'll work on the pandemic um, research. Try to get that finished up and figure out what what went wrong and um, uh, really looking at congressional attention preparedness and and to see. Um, what can we, and hopefully it'll lead to, to some type of, not, not just an academic publication, but maybe something that could help legislators make better decisions on how we look at public health and maybe related to like disaster preparedness too. Um, I'll, I'll probably, but once I, I'll have that project going on, but I, I, there's another project I'm still interested in, uh, uh, interest groups and corporate money and, um, and how corporate money in a lot of ways relates to nonprofits. Uh, that, that's something that's somewhat not explored as much. We always like to think of corporate influence as kind of this one-to-one -one relationship where they, 
they form a PAC or they or they give money to members of, of Congress, not directly, obviously, but through PACs and stuff like that. And they can influence policies, whether it's how members vote, um, whether or, or whether markup type of provisions to get put in bills. Um, I want to look at more of uh, how they give to nonprofit entities. Um, so not just members, but influencing how different groups rally against or behind certain policies. So it's like corporate foundations, they give money to these nonprofit groups. And so maybe on an issue that you think that the group would be opposed to, but they actually got some type of corporate money. So their influence extends beyond just um, Congress, but also the various groups, nonprofit groups that they that they provide donations to. Um, so that's that's what I'll be focusing on. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks, man. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on your preferred podcast streaming service. You've been listening to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.